you ever meet um, <clears throat> those people, you know, who just have like a contagious, life of the party, glowing personality? And it's not just like they're fun to be around, though that is true, of course, as well. But then they're also like highly productive, highly functional. They achieve, they accomplish great things, and they're the life of the party. You ever wonder how someone gets like that? Like, what's the secret? What, what's, what's the secret? Summer 2011, 23 years old. I'd just done my first year of seminary, and um, I was in New England, and for that whole summer, almost three months, I worked as a camp counselor for this leadership development program in New Hampshire. And um, what this program was, it was 24 seniors in high school, so they were 17 or 18 years old, 12 males, 12 females. And then there were four counselors, so me and three, three others, so me, another male, and then two um, female counselors. And what we did for the whole summer was um, we focused on spiritual formation, we dove into leadership development, and then also we went on these really rigorous and physical activities, camping trips. I'm not making this up. I look back. I don't know how this happened legally, but we would literally drop them off in an island in Canada for 48 hours, and they had to survive. They did have like a megaphone thing that they could make noise if we needed to rescue them, and we did do that for hypothermia. <laughs> Hopefully this camp is not watching this right now. So it was intense. And um, this wasn't just any kind of, you know, it was a very special group of 24 students. Um, they all came from New England. They came from old money, New England. Smart, brilliant. They were more mature than I was, honestly. They're probably still more mature than I am. And uh, sophisticated. Um, to give you an example, like one of them, um, their father's a well-known speaker and writer. Some of them, pretty much all of them went on to Ivy League schools, Harvard, Stanford. There was one of them, his dad was a professor at Harvard. I mean, you, you get the feel here. Um, two of them actually recently were on Shark Tank. You know what that is? So th this, is, this is who I'm dealing with, all right? It was actually very daunting. Well, the more daunting thing was... My male counselor that I partnered with for that whole summer, his name was Hank, and Hank had gone through this program. So he, he was a graduate of it, so he did it when he was 18, and Hank was on a whole other level. Hank was the life of the party, brilliant. I mean, kids hung on to like every word that he said. They adored him. I adored him. Guy was amazing. I mean, just a couple examples. Hank's the type of guy that could literally start a fire with, like, wet wood. <laughs> uh, literally. Um, Hank just happened to have a, an awesome voice. He could sing. The guy could, like, do theater and drama. He could go out on the lake and, and swim three miles and be fine. He was funny. He was an amazing, to this day, probably one of the best storytellers that I've ever, ever met. He was hilarious. He was compelling. Um, Hank, I remember early on, we'd have cabin night discussion every night with, with the guys. And dude would just like randomly drop like philosophy quotes. 
it was insane. Um, another time, we had all the kids out on this giant grass field with nothing to do. We were bored. And so Hank just kind of casually, hey, let's just make up like a life-size Monopoly game and play Monopoly in this grass field. I'm like, what in the world? We literally made like a portable jail cell. We had like the four railroad track things, all this stuff. Like we played Monop like a life-size form of Monopoly that we made all because of Hank's innovative genius. He was insane. I hadn't gone through the program. I wasn't from New England. Not from New England money. And the crowds loved Hank. The camp flocked to Hank. He was, a, he was literally a camp legend. And so I was in for a rude awakening that first week, end of the week. We just had dinner in the cafeteria. So it's like hangout time. I go out. And then the, the conversation starts to die down. Kids are looking for stuff to do. All of a sudden, it gets pretty boring and flat. And so out of my gut, I'm like, oh, okay, well, where's Hank? I mean, that's what you do. And there's a, where's Hank? Well, I couldn't find Hank. So then I start, hey, hey kid, does anybody know where Hank went? Uh, no one knows. My anxiety and my insecurity are greatly rising at this point. Okay, so I go look for Hank. I go into the cafeteria. That's, that's where we were last. I asked one of like, the food workers, because everyone knows who Hank is. He's a legend. Hey, have you seen Hank? Oh, yeah, he's, he's upstairs. All right. So I go upstairs into this like cozy, reflective, contemplative loft. And there's Hank sitting on a chair, just praying, playing the piano and singing worship songs. And I'm like, Hank, bro, dude, what are you doing? He like doesn't even respond at first. He's just kind of like in the moment. Dude, Hank, dude, I got, I got the kids outside. Like, come on, man. Like, I, I need you to come do, like, life-size Monopoly or something. Like, I got nothing in my, my ability to do this. And that was the first week that I found out that this is what Hank did once a week. Just disappeared, slipped away, wouldn't tell anyone. It made me anxious, made me angry. But this practice was built into Hank's lifestyle. It's just what Hank did. And it dawned on me, perhaps behind Hank's compelling and contagious personality, behind that life was actually a lifestyle of prayer and silence and solitude. Perhaps what led and caused Hank to have such brilliant ideas, this magnetic sense of joy, and this honed-in purpose for his life, perhaps that was because of a commitment and a practice of just being alone with his father in silence, in solitude, and he just had to slip away to get refueled spiritually, emotionally. 
to this day, that is what I, my memory of Hank is that. Hank had some crazy stories. His dad was the number two highest earning international lawyer in the world. Literally, Middle Eastern kings had bowed down to Hank when he went on trips with his dad. But it's the same Hank who would slip away just to be in his father's presence. I think a very similar thing is going on, but perhaps even more true, of Jesus of Nazareth and his friends in the first century. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to start at page, or excuse me, um, verse 35, page 682, if you need a Bible underneath your chair. Mark 1, 35. Very early in the morning, so if you're a night owl, hang with me. So early, but it was still dark. Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. In the Greek, it means that they're hunting him down. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and driving out demons. Here's the scene. Jesus has, has launched his public ministry. We've looked at this the last, last couple weeks. Two weeks ago, um, Pastor Brock, Jesus, the first thing he does when his ministry launches, he casts out a demon pretty much in their version of a church building. Then last Sunday, we looked at kind of this side commentary summary passage where it says that Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. They they, they go to her house. She has a fever. Jesus just heals her. She starts waiting on them. Um, And then what happens is the rest of the town brings the sick and those with demons to Jesus' door. Because word has spread all over the region of Galilee. People now know that Jesus, he's he's not just busy, but he's famous. Everyone is flocking to him, and they're flocking to him for good reason. Right? He's done great, miraculous things. Jesus is the most compelling human to ever live. And even Time Magazine would agree with that. They came out with an issue years ago where Jesus, they considered him to be the most influential person to ever live in history. See, people may have problems with the church, but very rarely do people have problems with the person of Jesus. Why? He's contagious. He's compelling. He's brilliant. I mean, earlier in Mark, there's this phrase that John Mark just says casually that everyone is in awe of him, and he's teaching as one with authority. The crowds are in amazement. News is spreading all throughout Galilee. And all of that is before we get to verse 35. So that's the scene, but you you also got to know what comes after that. And and we'll we'll get to this in, in next week, but what comes after is actually more of the same thing. Right after this passage, Jesus goes and heals someone with leprosy. And then he literally uh, heals a paralytic man. I mean, crazy, crazy stories. The crowds are growing. People are in amazement. They're praising God, and they're literally saying things like this. We have never seen anything like this. 
sandwiched right in between that. Miracles on this side, miracles on this side. And sandwiched right in the middle of it is this boring, calm description that John Mark puts in of Jesus getting up early in the morning before it's dark, leaves his house, goes away by himself, doesn't tell anyone, and just prays. And we know that he doesn't tell anyone because it says that Simon, I mean, they're, they're frantically looking for him. Like I said, in the Greek, it says they're, they're hunting for him. There's this sense of, man, Jesus' disciples, know there's, there's tons of people who need healing. There's tons of people who need demons cast out. And so they're looking for Je- Jesus. Where are you, dude? Do you not know what's going on? I mean, it's, it's a fascinating scene. And so they finally reach him. And you just get the sense that Jesus calmly, securely, intentionally is just alone with his father. And apparently, this isn't even a one-time thing. It's not a special thing. So we know from another biography of Jesus, Luke 5. Luke 5.16 tells us this. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. We love to talk about the miracles of Jesus. But do we talk about the lifestyle of Jesus? But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. God, do you know all the stuff I have to do? I I got to mow lawn. I gotta go to Trader Joe's, a grocery store, Albertsons. I gotta wash my car. I gotta vacuum. I gotta get my guest room organized. My parents, my family are coming in. I I gotta check my email. I gotta get all my meetings scheduled for next week. I I gotta catch up on the Law and Order episodes. Do you know what my schedule is, God? But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Whatever your list of priorities may be, and I'm sure they're just full of really wonderful, important things. I challenge you, I challenge myself, why don't you take those up and compare them to Jesus' schedule? Because his schedule just happened to be, you know, healing people with leprosy and a paralytic man, casting out demons. I mean, none of that stuff's important. It's not like anybody's life hinges upon those things. I say, and I hear a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I'm busy. Can you imagine if you asked Jesus of Nazareth of that? So let's compare our schedule with the Son of God. Whose schedule do you think is going to win out in terms of priority? But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So what's going on here? Why is John Mark, why is he placing this small little description in between these compelling stories? This, it's okay to say this. This description doesn't fit Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is quick. It's short. It's concise. He uses the word immediately some 40 times. Scholars bring this up. Jesus is always on the move. It's action-packed. And you know what? I think that's precisely the point. 
John Mark wants us to see that Jesus himself believes and knows that his power comes from spending time with his father. In order for Jesus to do his ministry, to do his miracles, to do his casting out of demons, he had to withdraw in silence and solitude. Jesus relied upon the presence of God for the power of God. Jesus relied upon the presence of God for the power of God. Yes, Jesus, fully God. Absolutely, I believe that. But Jesus here is operating in his humanity. And as he operated in his humanity, he radically depended upon the Holy Spirit, the power and presence of God to do his ministry. And you got to remember, this isn't a one-time thing. Luke 5, 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Um, the, the Greek word there, eromos, which is usually translated as solitary place, it means solitary, it means lonely, it means uninhabited. Usually it's translated as desert and wilderness. Jesus often went to the wilderness. Pastor and author Gordon McDonald writes this. Jesus often withdrew to seek solitude. While others were lulled to the rest of sleep, Jesus was drawn to the rest of gaining strength and direction for his next phase of mission. No wonder he met every encounter with a fresh burst of wisdom. No wonder he had ample courage to not fight back, not to defend himself. His spirit was always restive, his private world ordered. Without this kind of rest, our private worlds will always be strained and disordered. Jesus' logic, and I love that, Jesus' logic to turn away from the crowd and toward other towns and villages is not the kind of decision most politicians and entertainers would make, but it is the logic of heaven. Love that. Having Sabbath, Jesus could think clearly, make wise judgments, and stand firm in his convictions even when he was in the minority. Do you live by the logic of heaven or the logic of entertainers and, and politicians? See, Jesus, and this is important, Jesus lived in the everyday noise and distraction of the world. I mean, actually, in this passage, this is fascinating to think about. Jesus feels the pressure of crowds, of people-pleasing, of demands, of expectations. So don't, I, mean, I think sometimes we're a little bit... Um, snobbish that we think, oh, we're the only, you know, 21st century, we're the only ones that deal with this stuff because of social media. No, 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 no. Jesus dealt with expectations, a crazy schedule, distraction, and people who were pressuring him. Now, yes, today we have a smartphone, there's a TV in every room, you have access to your email 24-7, it's nonstop, but here's the point. For Jesus to do what he did, he had to be with his father. If that's true of Jesus, how much, true, how much more true of us is that? Before we get to doing what Jesus did, we have to first be with him. Doing flows out of being. Now, we have this built into our mission statement here at the bridge, right? So our purpose is to be with Jesus once we're with him, then we become like him naturally. And when we become like him naturally, we end up doing what he did. 
love the words of Mother Teresa. You can never go wrong by quoting Mother Teresa. She puts this, we need to find God and he cannot be found in noise and restlessness. God is the friend of silence. See how nature, trees, flowers, grass grow in silence. See the stars, the moon, and the sun, how they move in silence. The more we receive in silent prayer, the more we can give in our active life. We need silence to be able to touch souls. The essential thing is not what we say, but what God says to us and through us. Wouldn't it be so easy if you were here last Sunday, for that matter, the last couple Sundays, we have all this talk, this energy, casting out demons, healing the sick. I mean, we talk about, like, we want you to pursue that. We want you to chase after healing, whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, whatever. We, we believe that front and central to the ministry of Jesus, and thereby, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, is to pursue those things. Um, for followers of Jesus, the supernatural should become natural. It's just what we do. I think an issue that we have, though, it's so often once you get and you understand that and you get excited to live in it, that then you go and you pray for healing, uh, casting out demons, whatever your thing is, and then you get frustrated, discouraged, and mad when you don't see those things happen. Or, worse yet, perhaps you're a part of a situation or a group of people where they abuse those practices and you have a bad experience embedded in your brain because of that. Right? Some traditions end up focusing more on the gifts rather than the giver of the gifts. And they focus on the miraculous. It doesn't happen and they grow mad and they deconstruct and they leave their faith. Unfortunately, that is very common. But I think here's what we learned this morning in this passage. And, and I, just, I just think John Mark intentionally puts it there in between stories of miracles. And one of my mentors just happens to be called John Mark as well. He says this, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want to experience the life of Jesus... You have to adopt his lifestyle. If you want to experience the power of God, if you want to have like a crystal clear picture of your purpose from the Father, then you need to be regularly in his presence. The power and purpose of God come from the presence of God. If you want God's power, if you want to see healing and miracles, and I hope we do, you know what's the most important thing? is to focus on the presence of God. I'm a book that I quoted last week, Mike Pilavachi, in his, every, his book, Everyday Supernatural. This is gold. Like, you should take a screenshot of this. He writes this. Our goal should be relationship with Jesus, not power from Jesus. God's power is never something he sends to us from a distance. Miracles are not like parcels from Amazon arriving disconnected from the sender. The power of God cannot be separated from his presence. If you are standing next to a fire, 
you know you'll become warm. If you jump in a pool, you know you'll get wet. In the same way, if you are close to the Lord, his power will be present. The power is in the presence. And when we seek to be close to God, the potential for the supernatural is all around us. The power is in his presence. Jesus ministered out of a desert experience. I think that's something that the American 21st century church needs to know. Now, I'd also add, if I can, to Pilavachi's catchy little phrase, their powers in the presence, I also want to add, purpose is in the presence. It, you see what happens here? Jesus is alone early in the morning. He's facing deep pressure, expectation, and for good things. Again, people want him to heal him. That is, that's as about as good as it gets. And his friends come chasing after him. They hunt him down. And Jesus has the audacity, but I would say the clarity, to say, I know what I'm here for. And it's time for me to go to another village. Do you realize how crazy that is? I mean, let's just play some ifs here. Let's say this isn't the case. Don't call me a heretic. If Jesus of Nazareth was physically in this room, and we all needed healing, which, oh, by the way, I think we do. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation. And Jesus was just like, you know what? I know you guys need healing, but I'm supposed to go somewhere else. Do you know how secure you have to be emotionally to be able to say that? Jesus receives clarity of his purpose of why he came and what he's supposed to do by being alone with the Father at night or early in the morning. Let me just read that. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I've come. Purpose and power from presence. The same thing holds for each and every single one of us today. There's this remarkable story of a Dutch Christian missionary. You know the history of Chino, Dutch community. I got you guys covered on this story. All right. Anybody here heard of Brother Andrew? All right, yeah. Brother Andrew. Um, he, he, basically, his story is this. Um, in the 1950s, during the height of the Cold War, Brother Andrew would go into Eastern Europe communist countries to bring Bibles. It was illegal to have Bibles in those countries. Brother Andrew lived a life full of powerful miracles, literally. Um, he wrote a book, you can Google this. He literally was called, and this is the name of the book title, God's Smuggler. That's like the dream Christian nickname. Who are you? I'm God's smuggler. <clears throat> so here's a story. It's probably his most well-known one. He's got tons. Brother Andrew is approaching the Romanian border in the 50s, height of the Cold War. And cars are in line, and he sees, he sees right above him 
there's guards that are checking every single car as they go by. To be more precise, they're asking the person to get out of the car, remove everything in their car, remove the seats, remove the hubcaps. They search through everything in the car, and he's sitting there with hundreds of Bibles in his car. And he realizes, ooh, this is not going to be good. He knows a miracle has to happen. That is the only way, literally, the only way that he's getting out of this alive. He begins praying. Brother Andrew has the audacity He gets to this point where he's like, well, I know a miracle has to happen, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the Bibles in plain open sight on the seats in my car. Rolls up, checkpoint, Romanian guard comes, just asks for his passport, looks at his passport, and waves him on. He, he actually doesn't believe it so much that as he's driving away, he's looking in his rearview mirror. I mean, this is what he writes. And he's just kind of like, are, are they going to, like, come after me? Like, wh- what's going on? And he then sees the guards starting to check the cars behind him. And there's a phrase that they developed. There's something about, like, God blinded them so that they couldn't see the Bibles in the car. God cleared the way for Brother Andrew to bring Bibles to a country and a people that had no access to them. Brother Andrew's life was full of power. Now, that's actually not the point of the story. Now, Brother Andrew in his 80s, this is insane, visits drug lords and terrorists. Yeah, you gotta be God's smuggler to do that. So in Mike Pilvachi's book, which he also writes with a, a young gentleman named Andy Croft. Andy Croft shares the story that he's sitting in Brother Andrew's house. And he's just casually, you know, looking at pictures of Brother Andrew with well-known terrorists who he shared the gospel with. Andy Croft, and we'll put this on the screen, he asks him this, Brother Andrew, You are in your old age, and you are on fire for Jesus. I'm in my 20s, and that's where I want to be when I'm your age. What's your secret? I was really asking, how do I get to be like you and see God do all the crazy things you've seen? And I hope this gives you bumps on your arms. Andrew looked at me for a moment, and then he said this, the secret is to stick close to Jesus. The secret is to stick close to Jesus. Really? That's the secret. The power is in the presence. Quite simply, the question for us this morning is this. Do you intentionally Spend time in silence, in solitude with your heavenly father. Just like Jesus did. If we want the life of Jesus, we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Now, Jesus did it early in the morning. 
And maybe you're here, this is me, I'm a night owl. So I read that and I'm like, ooh, that's that, that, I don't do that. But here's also what I've learned in the last couple weeks, last couple months. I have two toddlers. One of them doesn't sleep right now. I've, my job can be stressful. I've got a lot on my plate. More often than not, if I push it off to the night to, to be alone with God, it doesn't happen. In the, literally in the last couple weeks, I told Rachel this yesterday, I just need to get up early. I don't want to, but I just need to. Before the kids wake up, before I check my emails, and I just need to make a fresh cup of coffee, that always helps. That's part of the secret, I think. Brother Andrew left that part out. <laughs> and just to sit alone, Bible open, meditate, reflect. That's what I need to do. And I fight everything to do that. But I know now, though, the logic of heaven says that, Mark, that's what you got to do. Is that a rhythm of yours? Meaning this, are you uncompromising in your pursuit of Jesus? Will you stop at nothing to be close with him? I find it fascinating that we are uncompromising in our pursuit of many other things. Athletics, curriculum, whatever your thing is. And I don't say that to put a guilt trip on you. That's not, that's not, that's not my point. I just simply want to raise awareness of you will be uncompromising to something. Jesus of Nazareth says if you want to experience his power and purpose, you got to be uncompromising to him. What's, what's the secret? To sit close to Jesus. Before you open your phone, can we open the scriptures? Before you hear the voices of culture surrounding you, can you listen for the voice of your father? All you have to do, all I need to do is wake up, get a Bible, sit down, and begin to reflect. The same principles that work with how we learn how to play an instrument, learn a language, exercise. It's the same thing with our walk with Jesus. I mean, I thought about, I didn't because it was stupid and silly, but like bringing up some giant weight set in here. I don't, I don't lift weights right now if you can't tell. <laughs> and if I just tried to like lift 250 pounds right now, would it work? No because I haven't done anything to build up to it. A lot of us are wanting to lift big weights with Jesus, but we've never spent time with him. You just can't go and lay down on the bench and max out at 225, 245 plates, unless you've spent a couple months to get to that point. Power is in the presence. Now, I hope we want to lift some big weights for Jesus and his kingdom. Do you know what I think will hold the bridge back this year? 
it's undeniable that in the last month or two, I mean, I'm just hearing lots of story. God's moving, God's presence, and it's great, and that, that is a cry of our hearts. But what will move us back this year from seeing a movement is that if each and every one of us doesn't prize our intimacy with Jesus. We want revival, and the Father wants revival, but he only gives it to those who are ready to receive it. Our spiritual muscles, our character, have to be ready to receive the power because it's going to be a crazy power. But he only gives it to those who are ready to receive it. I want to invite the, the band back up. So I, I don't know what this means for you, um, especially as it pertains to right now in this moment. But my guess is we are all called to a radical, intentional intimacy with our Father. And I, um, you know, I struggle with that. I think one of the best things that we can do is to pray for each other that we would have a rich, li a rich devotional life, profound prayer life, hearing God's voice, drowning out the other voices of culture that vie for our attention. God just, he, he just wants hungry people. If you look at the history of revival, last more than a couple hundred years, it always happens when people are desperate and hungry and beyond themselves. It never happens when things are going well. Are you at the point where you're desperate and hungry for God's presence? If you are, we have a prayer team up here. We just want to pray that over one another, like a deep intimacy with the Father. So I would just encourage you just to come up for prayer. And honestly, if you need anything else, that's not even related to that. But the power is in the presence. Let's pray. Father, just as we breathe air, the song that we're going to sing, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that we would breathe your breath. Often in the Bible, Lord, you describe your Holy Spirit as a, as a fresh breath of wind. And I just pray that you would just sweep us up in that wind right now. We want to receive from you. Come, Holy Spirit.